Well, I want to say hi to everybody in this room, everybody joining us, all our campuses online. I want to say a word about our South City campus that got started one year ago. We're one church, uh, six different locations, campuses all around the Bay Area, stuff going on. And everybody at every campus, I want you to know about the South City folks, their dedication every week. That's the campus where they haul everything in. They set everything up after the services. They do great ministry and then tear everything back down. They come back the next week and do it all over again. They do it with great servant hearts and uh, joyful attitudes. And to everybody at South City, you do it in the most noble cause to help people find and follow Jesus. And this is your one-year birthday. And you're heroes. And at every campus, we want to celebrate. So let's cheer them on. All right. Uh, there's a story, been around for a long while, I don't know where it's from, but a long time ago, there was a carpenter, a master carpenter, and he went into the house building business, and he built great houses. After many years of working for the same employer, he decided he was kind of tired, he wanted out of his contract, he wanted to retire. And his boss said, okay, but there's one more house on the contract, it's on a beautiful lot with a magnificent view, and the boss wants it to be a dream house and insists that the master carpenter build it. The carpenter agreed he needed the money to build a little cottage for his retirement, but his heart was not in it. He resented having to do the work. So he cut corners. He got sloppy. He substituted particle board for good wood. He used plastic pipes where uh, copper pipes were called for. Walls got put up that were not built to plumb. He did things that would make Chip and Joanna Gaines from the show Fixer Upper get sick to their stomach. When he finished, his boss shook his hand and thanked him for the many years of their work together. And then his boss handed him an envelope. And when he opened it, he found out to his shock, it contained the deed to the house he had just built. <laughs> he did not know that the house that he had been building with so much resentment and such a grudging spirit and so much dishonesty was the place where he would have to spend the rest of his years. Day after day, he had been given the opportunity to create something unique and magnificent. He could have done that, and he threw away the chance of a lifetime, and he did not even know. Now, this all happened in a long-ago time, in a faraway place. If it had happened today in the Bay Area, he would have sold that miserable hovel for $6.7 million and built a mansion in Sacramento. Some of you are watching online in Sacramento right now. You used to be here, and you cashed out your little old house and are living in a mansion in Sacramento. And those of us who are scrapping to find a way to live here and build a church for Jesus are happy for you, uh, but not super happy. <laughs> but the carpenter in this story was deeply sad because he had done this to himself. He would spend the rest of his life living in a place that he built carelessly and resentfully and grudgingly and joylessly and without integrity. Our character is the house we live in, the house that matters. And we build it, every one of us, one day at a time, one choice at a time. We build it, every one of us, on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse. We build it, every one of us, every day, by how I spend my time by the words that I speak and the words that I hear, by the people that I love or the people that I ignore, and especially the thoughts that I allow to occupy my mind. I am building my life. And when I cut corners, when I compromise my integrity, 
When I build, as I do sometimes with resentment or ego or pettiness or self, I am creating a future that will become my destiny. You are building your house. How's it going? How's your house going? The biblical writers were keenly interested in what a well-lived life looks like. How do human beings flourish? And that's what Paul is interested in when he writes this letter to the church of Corinth that we're studying these days, his first letter. And there, everybody was building their life, designing their life. His most popular course at Stanford became a New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life. Everybody was designing their life around the pursuit of status or wealth or reputation or honor. But there is another pattern for designing a human life, oddly, around humility and self-giving love and death to ego. It is a cross-shaped life. A cruciform, cross-shaped life. And that's why this word cross and the pattern of the cross occurs over and over and over in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And in this message, we're going to look at how Paul talks about you ought to design a life, your life, in a way where the goodness of it will last because you have this one chance and we just throw it away. So, here we go. This is from the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you, together, are that temple. Now Paul's primary concern here is about the church. We together are the church, the place where God's Spirit dwells. But of course the church is made of people, so now this involves every one of us and our lives. Everybody is constructing a life. Paul makes this amazing statement, you are God's building. You. My wife loves a show called House Hunters International. Anybody here ever hear of House Hunters International? And it'll feature somebody or some couple that wants to relocate, like from Abilene, Texas, to Switzerland. And, and then they'll struggle over what kind of home or apartment do they want to live in. And in this passage, it's almost like God is house hunting, and he wants to move from up there to down here. And oddly enough, his dream house is you. Now, of course, we're not fit to be God's dream house yet. You are a fixer-upper, and so am I. We are under construction. And you'll, cheer, you'll choose the materials that will be used to build your life. You will do this, not your circumstances, you. Paul lists 
six different materials in this passage, but really they can be divided essentially into two groups. Gold, silver, or precious stones, those are materials that will stand up to the fire. The fire in the Bible uh, very often, and here, is an image to talk about God's judgment, God's penetrating, uh, discerning ability to decide what is good and what is not. Good silver, precious stones, those materials, qualities that will stand up to his judgment. Wood, hair, straw are materials, qualities that will not. So building your life, which you will do, which I will do inevitably, is not mostly a matter of our outer circumstances. We so often think our lives are about what kind of income or what kind of vocational opportunities or how high is my IQ or what's my body shape or is my face attractive or my hair or, or my resume or my GPA. No, no, no. It's, it's my character. It's, it's the quality of my inner life that matters. It's the kind of thoughts and desires and intentions and habits that come to govern my minutes and then my hours and then my days and then my years. And that's what matters most about me. And gang, we live in a place that is so uh, deluded about this. Money, title, office, reputation are dust, ashes in comparison. They're going to be gone like this. And some people with great looking outer lives are living in spiritual hovels. And some people who appear very unimpressive in worldly terms are actually even now beginning to inhabit an eternal masterpiece. We think that what matters, we think even that what matters to God are the things we do for God, our accomplishments or achievements. No, no, as Dallas Willard used to say, the main thing gets, God gets out of your life is the person you become. The main thing God gets out of your life not your resume, not your accomplishments. Not, it's the person you become. And that also is the main thing you get out of your life. That is what you will take with you into eternity. So this text poses two questions that I want to invite all of us to use as we examine our lives in light of the cross, this cruciform life, this pattern of self-giving, other-serving love. Two questions for this message, real simple. And the first one is, what will I build my life with? What are the qualities of spirit that a wise carpenter would choose? Now, for gold, silver, and precious gems, we might think about what Paul talks about as the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. For wood, hay, and stubble, we might think about their opposing qualities. Instead of love, ego. Instead of joy, envy. Instead of peace, hurry and chronic anxiety. And the reason that we need to examine our lives in light of the cross is that the true nature of my inner life, of my character, is actually known only to God. And one day, it will be revealed in high definition. And Paul says, uh, by way of talking about this, the day will bring it to light. Now, when he talks about that, the idea is an old phrase from the Bible, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, when God will make everything clear and all mysteries will get solved and, and there'll be no moral ambiguity left anymore, no, rights that go, uh, no wrongs that go unrighted anymore. And I want to tell you about two different people who are part of the ministry world that I inhabit. But this is, this is the, the kind of choice that we all face. 
From the outside, uh, the lives of these two people looked remarkably similar. They led many folks, they designed programs, they were involved in organizational leadership, they would often speak at the same conferences, teach on the same subjects, run in the same circles, have similar levels of recognition and success. And yet, a striking difference would emerge as you got to know each of them up close. When you get to know the inner circle of people who knew them well or, or watch how they responded in little hidden moments of daily life. With one of them, the better people got to know him, the more they loved him. He was kind and gentle and humble. He cared about people. When he was wrong, he would admit it quite easily. He was unhurried. It was life-giving to work for him. He just naturally treated people well, his peers, his subordinates, somebody on the wait staff of a restaurant. Everybody was naturally interesting to him, not because he was trying to look like a Christian or something. It just looked that way. He had what a writer David Brooks calls eulogy virtues, those virtues that people talk about at a memorial service when somebody dies and they're given a eulogy. And at the end of this man's life, although there was great pain, he was able to let go of his life with enormous gratitude. His body aged. He didn't have the same title or office anymore, but his spirit was filled with hope. And when he died, the circle of love, the stories that got told about him, the lives that were touched by him, the joy that he produced just rippled and rippled and rippled and rippled. With the second person, in a lot of ways, it was almost the exact opposite. He had what David Brooks called resume virtues, qualities that make for a successful career. But the closer you got to this person's life and inner circle, the more troubling the truth was, the worse the house looked. He treated people badly, often using a combination of fear or intimidation along with flattery or manipulation. It was clear in a hundred ways that his ego was running this show, even though this was in God's name. His life was full of secrets. Nobody really knew him. If you ask people who worked under him, was, was it a life-giving, joy-producing relationship? They would literally laugh. People would be impressed from a distance. But up close, this was a life that was empty and lonely. And when his power and title were gone, there were no people that were bound to him by love. And at the end of his life, you could feel him trying desperately to grasp onto a little kingdom that no longer belonged to him. Because that little kingdom that was his little kingdom was all he ever really had. And those two lives from, the, from a distance would look so similar, but when you got close up, gold, silver, precious gems, wood, hay, straw. What am I building my life with? My secret life, my eternal life, the main thing God gets from me. Sometimes it's the story of two families. From the outside, both sets of kids look like real high achievers and everybody admires that family, but you get close. One of them is filled with coldness and pressure to perform and the other one just love and joy. Or two different coaches. They both have the same record, but one coach operates on anger, fear, intimidation. The other one builds his team with teaching and inspiration and courage and love. There's a psychologist by the name of Eric Erickson and he wrote about the stages of life that adults pass through. It's so interesting. He said the final stage of life before you die was either integrity 
or despair. And integrity is when you have built a life, a character, a soul that is made up of those qualities of the Spirit that will stand up to the fire when it is revealed on the day. And despair is when you have built with wood, hay, and stubble. No matter how big and impressive your house looks, no matter what your resume is, how am I building? When we had our first baby, Nancy asked me to get a little chest of drawers that would also serve as a changing table for our baby. And we had no money back then, so we got it quite cheaply from a store called Ikea. Ikea is the thorn in my flesh. When you get furniture from Ikea, you have to construct it yourself. And I hate doing this. I have no tools. I'm not making this up. Literally for the first 20 years of our marriage, my toolkit was called Handy Andy Jr., I got it when I was 12 years old. I never upgraded it. When I started constructing this little changing table for our baby, I would get confused. I could not find the right parts. I would get blisters trying to screw in unscrewable screws, and I would start substituting. This screw doesn't work, so I'll just hammer in a nail. Uh, I'm not sure what a washer is. We can put a little felt in there. I'll use some cardboard to make it stable because it keeps wobbling. When it was done, I proudly showed it to Nancy. One of the drawers would not open. It was tilted at a 30-degree angle. There were nails sticking up out of the changing table. We're going to put our babies on that, Nancy said. This is like the changing table of death. She said she would never ask me to build anything again, which is part of why I built the changing table of death in the first place. How's your remodel going? Is there a relationship where you need to pour in some love? Is there somebody that you need to encourage or listen to? or play with, or serve, or give a gift to? Is there any place where God is calling you to be grateful, to stop comparing your house to somebody else's house? Maybe you are building the house of hurry, and you're just rushing through it day after day after day. Yeah, I'll worry about God and my relationship with Him. I'll make time for prayer. I'll make space for my soul. N not today. Don't have time today. The main thing God gets out of your life is the person. The main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. He is not going to be terribly interested in your resume. Now we're going to continue this topic next week. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, out of another passage in Corinthians about the four selves that each of us have. There is a public you, there is a private you, there is a real you, and then there is a fourth you that will take your breath away. But I told you uh, in this message today, there's a second question, and that's what I want to move to. That's what I want to end with. The first question is, uh, what do you build in your house with? The second question is, what foundation will I build my life on? Paul has this very intriguing, mysterious statement. This is a, a really fascinating passage. And he says, even somebody who builds with the wrong materials, even somebody where there's a lot of wood, there's a lot of hay, there's a lot of stubble, they're making a lot of mistakes, they're getting a lot of stuff in their life wrong, uh, 
even if they do that, they'll lose some of their rewards. In other words, I take that some of the goodness that God has made for them, that God would build into them. They'll lose some of that, but they will still be saved, Paul says. They'll still be the kind of person that will be able to be with God through eternity if they have the right foundation. If they have the right foundation. Now, your foundation is what you count on more than anything else. Your foundation is what your heart depends on to make you secure when your world gets all shook up. My foundation is my ultimate commitment. Not just what I say is my ultimate commitment, what really is my ultimate commitment. It might be money. A lot of people it is. It might be health. For a lot of people it is. It might be looks. For a fair amount of people, it is. And then aging is real painful. It might be being smart. Might be having my kids turn out just right. Or it might be something better. Paul said, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he laid that foundation, of course, supremely in the cross through his whole life and his teaching and his acts of servanthood and then in his self-giving death on a cross, which then ended up in his resurrection starting this new building, God's building, the church. That's you and me. And I can make Jesus the foundation of my life, not my circumstances, not my emotions. I can trust him. I can depend on him. I can hand over my dreams to him. I can take my direction from him. I can confess my sins to him. And gang, I will tell you, when you make Jesus the foundation of your life, whatever storm comes, and the storm will come, it might rock your world, but it will not end your world. When you make Jesus your foundation, sometimes God takes materials you thought you did not want, that you thought were so painful, and makes them, in a strange, redemptive twist, the most beautiful part of your house, where love and joy and peace shine through, brightest of all. And I've seen God do this. And I wanted you to see just one story of one such life. So take a look at the screens for a moment. I married very, very young. In eighth grade, we were together and ended up marrying right out of high school. We couldn't wait to serve God together, which we did uh, for 28 years. And um, had many, many great years, three children, and, and then that marriage ended. I had always felt like I could navigate anything married, and when I had to walk up and touch that one thing that I thought would just kill me if I ever had to give that up, what I found in that moment was that God met me there and he carried me through that incredibly dark time. I continued trusting that he had a plan. And as my children all married and I had grandchildren, um, one of my greatest blessings came four years ago when the last of my eight grandchildren was born. Um, my daughter, Michelle, had three boys and this was her last, her girl. And we were so excited waiting for the arrival of this new baby. And she called me that night from the hospital to say, 
mother, something's not right. In naming this precious baby, uh, Michelle chose a name, Eden Grace. And Eden was chosen because that's a place where brokenness entered our world. Seeing the baby and after the testing was done, it was confirmed that Eden had Down syndrome. I felt devastated for my daughter. Uh, I didn't know what a special needs child would mean for her. Eden Grace is a perfect example of where brokenness and grace have come together in an amazing way. And she has truly become one of the greatest joys of my life. It's a gift that God gave me that I didn't think I wanted. I didn't, and yet the source of my deepest joy um, as she's pre-verbal and learning to talk everything is a celebration every word every just the joy that comes from watching her discover and grow if you were a boat my darling a boat my darling I'd be the wind at your back <laughs> if in life, I have learned that through it all, through every dark night, through every storm, through every difficulty, God has met me right where I'm at. He has carried me through and brought me to a place of peace and even joy. And I am grateful for that foundation that was laid into my life early on that has made all the difference. God's that way, that marriage that seemed like it was the end can be a new beginning. And that birth that looked like it was a heartache can bring joy like nothing else. It all depends on what's the foundation of my life. So let's make it personal. For every one of us, what foundation are you building your life on? Um, I grew up in the Midwest, Rockford, Illinois, where tornadoes were quite common when I was a little kid, so I didn't mind them very much. When I moved out to California, anybody want to guess what I was afraid of? Earthquakes. My folks moved out here, and no kidding, to this day, under their beds, they have um, hard hats and shoes and flashlights, just in case the earthquake comes. My favorite structure in the Bay Area, by far, is the Golden Gate Bridge. It's quite bold because its great south pier rests directly on the fault zone of the San Andreas Fault. Why would any sane person ever go onto that bridge? Earl Palmer writes that by design, every part of the bridge, the roadway, its railings, its great cross beams, are related through the vast cable systems to two great towers that are deeply embedded into the rock foundation underneath the sea. If an earthquake comes, it can sway 22 feet at the center of the roadway and not give way and not fall down. In other words, the bridge is totally preoccupied with its foundation. And that is its secret strength. 
And that is what makes it strong and endure when the world shakes. Next week, we're celebrating Baptists at every campus, and we're going to see people kind of like we saw in this film. Anybody who has made a decision, made Jesus Christ the foundation of their life, their secret strength, they'll uh, go through the act of baptism. If you have not done that yet, you can make him the foundation of your life today. In light of the cross, you can confess your sin and die to the house of ego and envy and hurry and ask him to become the leader and the bedrock of your life. And then next week you can get baptized and have a whole church cheering you on. Because a long time ago, there was a carpenter, a master carpenter, and he went into the house building business, and he's still in it. And if you let him, he'll build yours. Would you pray together with me? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the remarkable gift that you have given to us of this life. And forgive us, God, how often, how casually we just throw away moments, hours, days, even years that are your gifts to us. And we build with wood hand straw. God, would you help us, everybody here that is constructing a life, to build it with love and with joy and with peace and do whatever we need to do to make whatever changes we need to make, God, in order to do that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.